1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. There's a new president in the White House. Joe Biden took over on Wednesday, and Kamala Harris became vice president during an uplifting and inspiring U.S. inauguration ceremony. There was a collective sigh of relief as the inauguration went off without violence with the help of about 20,000 members of the U.S. National Guard deployed following the storming of the Capitol by pro-Donald Trump forces on January 6th. Joe Biden is promising to unify the country and heal the wounds while trying to deal with the pandemic, which has led to the deaths of more than 400,000 Americans. Libby Snymer was joined by a panel of American experts to discuss the tall order. Seth Weathers, president and lead Republican strategist at Weathers Corporation. Dr. Jordan Ragusa, associate professor and associate chair of the Department of Political Science at College of Charleston. And Dr. Chris Cooper, professor and department head of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University.
2: I think it went off as well as it could, right? I mean, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the speech, and you know, I kind of liken these inauguration speeches to a universe, to a like an organization's mission statement, right? Consultants will tell you they're the most important thing in the world. The reality is they don't mean much without action. So I think Joe Biden did everything he could do. It was a good speech. It went off without violence, as you noted at the outset, um, and I think we will see whether he can follow those words with action.
3: Jordan Ragusa, your take? I agree
2: with Dr. Cooper. I mean, Reagan said in 1981 that our inaugurations are uh, normal, but nonetheless a miracle. Uh, And I think that's a good way of encapsulating things. I mean, there's sort of a routineness to these inaugurations. You know, I don't think Joe Biden's speech was remarkable by um, some of the standards of recent speeches. Um, But nonetheless, it was sort of a, a miracle that it came off, you know, not only without violence, um, but given all of the things that the United States is, is facing these days, from um, the pandemic to the threat of political violence uh, and, of course, the current economic
3: conditions. Seth Weathers, your take? Yeah, I, I, you know, for the
4: most part, I agree with the others. It uh, You know, it's typical of an inauguration. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially going through the motions. And, yeah, they make a lot of promises and, and grand ideals come out of those. But, you know. It's always said there's there's people follow what you do, not what you say, so I think the you know coming months and years is when uh people will uh, really decide what they think of the biden administration um but but i'm I'm honestly not surprised about the lack of any violence um there were, you know the the troops was all political theater and show, the vast majority of which were walking around with unempty guns, so with empty weapons so again it was a very fairly pointless um uh, maneuver that took place there. and um, But I am obviously happy that it went off without violence, especially that it went off without the level of violence that we saw in 2016 when President Trump uh, came into office.
3: Chris Cooper, what would you like to leave us with?
2: You know, I think we all probably agree that Donald Trump will be a force in the Republican Party for years to come, and that perhaps more importantly, the Trump brand will. And so I think, yes, Larry Trump perhaps running for U.S. Senate, um Ivanka Trump perhaps running for uh, for something in Florida um and even just the specter of that possibility I think is going to be a challenge for the Republican party so in the same way that I think the Democratic Party um, spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out what their future was after the 2016 election. I think it's going to be a really interesting few years for the Republican Party as they try to, to figure out which direction to go. You know, is it towards a Mitch McConnell, more institutional, traditional, conservative Republican Party, or is it a Republican Party that uh, caught fire under Donald Trump? And, and I don't think anybody knows exactly what it'll look like, but the outcome of that will largely determine what happens to the party and what
3: happens to our country. Uh, and Seth Weathers, where do you think that will land? I, I don't believe
4: that Trump will actually run for president in 2024. you got to think about his age at that point um, and then to go through the whole process again. And He'll I, be I, Biden's it, age. He'll be uh, Biden's
3: age. Anyway, go right, ahead. Sorry. It,
4: exactly. And when we see <laughs> <laughs> Biden's been in a basement all year, so we'll see how well he holds up. Uh, but that's my point. I, I don't know that I see him. Uh, Doing it at that age, I think he would rather imply that he may run to, in essence, hold that seat or hold that position open to keep others from jumping in until we get closer to the actual uh, primary, and then he will have the ability to essentially be a kingmaker, whether that's a Don Jr. or a Governor of Florida like Ron DeSantis, whoever it may be, for him to uh, get behind. But I do believe that the party is going just because Trump is not out of is, is out of office. Does not mean that the seventy-four million people that voted for him are not still mad as hell at D.C. and the establishment. And so, what I think we're going to see is a lot of challengers in the primaries coming up in twenty twenty-two to the more establishment-leaning um, Republicans. And I do believe there's a opportunity that a lot of those will be defeated. And um, you know, it depends on who the challenger is, but we'll have to find out if they can go on to win a general election. But I do believe that the The base of the Republican Party is going to be more of the America first populism, um, I guess you could say, more of a pro-Trump type of base that's going to come into office in 2022.
1: Seth Weathers, president and lead Republican strategist at Weathers Corporation, Dr. Chris Cooper, professor and department head of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University, and Dr. Jordan Ragusa, associate professor and associate chair of the Department of Political Science at the College of Charleston. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. We began the week with Blue Monday, the third Monday of January, which was designated years ago as the glummest day of the year as a way to market vacations. But the idea took off because there seems to be something real behind it. The depths of winter can be depressing, and this year we're in the throes of the second wave of COVID-19, which is taking a toll for many. And it's worse for older people who live alone and hesitate to go out even for the few allowable activities. Joining Libby to discuss, psychologist Dr. Sam Claridge and Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough.
5: It's hard to get our pause on the actual statistics and know exactly what's going on given the COVID situation that's, that's here as well but certainly with the spirit of Blue Monday where somebody tried to figure out you know, how, what's the time of year when everything, the worst of everything is kind of coming together and now to add that to to a pandemic for sure, I mean it, it is the case the pandemic has also bred a whole lot of anxiety um, and, and so we're seeing certainly anxiety that that is very common but depression is the thing we really worry about because it's the potentially more dangerous one, so it's certainly something we have to be watching carefully.
3: Dr. Claridge, do you agree? Is depression is there just in terms of your own practice? Are you seeing an increase in depression, and is it is it the most worrisome thing?
6: Um, I'm certainly worrisome. There's anxiety, there's marital problems, agitation, poor sleeping, poor eating. Some people overeat, some people undereat. Um, and when people do get depressed, I think we need to realize that in most situations. And in fact, most depressions are situational in order, which means that we can um, sort of um, sort of try and bring about some change, both in our thinking and in our doing. That'll make life easier. Although certainly, uh, the mood of depression uh, can be a very very serious problem. But at the same time, we can have a handle on it. We can take some measures to try and uh, uh, try and relieve it.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Jordan's, what are some of those measures? There's very simple ones um there are things like you
5: led the show with music um a little bit of blues uh quite literally if If people have uh, a playlist of music from better times in their life, from when they went on that trip to Mexico, from you know various nice memories they have, music has a really powerful way of bringing us temporarily at least into a, a better mind state and, and then making us feel good. The other really critical thing during COVID is, you know, often our number one reaction to any negative emotion is to reach out to other human beings. And, and COVID has made that hard. And you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, some people might not be going out. Um, not, physically being close to somebody does not mean we shouldn't be socially close, and and in fact we should. Uh, What a lot of people have to be doing now is much more intentionally scheduling social interactions, literally having times in the day maybe when you reach out to people you love and spend a bit of time on the phone with them and connect with people because those things, those social connections are the more enduring, like just knowing people are there and they care can have a really strong effect on, on us in terms of helping us kind of cope with all of the challenges we're facing now. Yeah, the thing I like to mention about the phone, it's got two aspects that are really great. One, we actually pay attention to the person. Once we stick the phone to our ear, we actually listen to what the person is saying. Whereas on a Zoom, we're always sort of half attending, and they can tell. Uh, and they can tell especially in terms of the second important thing, which is what's really important in a conversation, it's less about the words, and it's more about the nonverbals. If if I'm telling you a story and saying, hey, I was down at the lake and there were these young people and they walked right at me. If you just go, that sound tells me you've been there. You know what that feels like. That is so annoying. That's too bad that I had to go go through that. You felt that with me. Uh, Those non-verbals are what really connect us. And the phone gives us those non-verbals in such a clear way. Uh, And so, yeah, that's why I say, pick up the phone, let's rediscover it. However and this may sound corny, no one ever said that it was going to be easy.
6: No one ever said that it wasn't going to be tough. No one ever said that this is going to be a piece of cake or a walk in the park. It's not. It's as tough as hell. There's no question about it. On the other hand, we have resources that we can use, and we've got to continue to use them, and I think that's what's been talked about here. Pick something that'll work for you. It It may work today, may not work tomorrow. Pick something else tomorrow, but it's one day at a time, using your your mind to work for you and pick out actions and behaviors that you can engage in no matter what it is, and we'll get through it together. We're all going to get through this together.
1: Psychologist Dr. Sam Claritch and Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at U of T Scarborough. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... Radical MP Derek Sloan is officially out of the Federal Conservative Party.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. The federal conservative leader got rid of one of his own this week. Aaron O'Toole and his conservative members of parliament voted to oust former leadership candidate Derek Sloan from the conservative caucus for accepting a campaign donation from a known white supremacist. The news about Sloan's controversial campaign donation came after Aaron O'Toole last weekend put out a lengthy statement trumpeting his moderate stands on issues such as abortion and gay rights, issues that have long been accepted by Canadian society at large. O'Toole even went so far as to say he is a moderate, which is seen as his way of trying to lure liberal supporters ahead of the next federal election, which could come as early as this spring. On Tuesday, Libby Snymer addressed the issues around Aaron O'Toole, who is clearly trying to distance himself from right-wing extremists and social conservatives within the Conservative Party. She was joined by former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road.
7: I think what Aaron was trying to do and what he has done was is he saw the Liberals were trying to ramp up that very... You know, attempt to try to define him in this way. So I think it was a counter to, to what the liberals are trying to do to define him a certain way. Uh, obviously I think it's, it's something that, you know, you gotta get out there and causes, uh, debate and discussion, which I think is what Aaron wants. And, and, and quite frankly, hopefully it'll put it to bed so that when there's an election coming and, and we, we all agree that there probably likely will be an election this year, um, you know, he's, he's already addressed that issue in a very, in a very strong and, and passionate manner.
3: He wants to expel Sloan ostensibly for taking $131 from this known white supremacist. Sloan says he's going to fight, that he didn't know that this was the guy. And as soon as he found out, he asked to send the money back. I mean, is that just an excuse to uh, get this guy out of the party? And Because uh, there are a lot of social conservatives in the conservative party, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you.
7: Well, as the leader of the party, or quite frankly, any party, you make the decision whether or not you want to address that issue or not. Mike Harris did when he was premier, Stephen Harper did, uh, and O'Toole is no different, and he made that very abundantly clear. In fact, I think his first speech when he was leader was that he was not going to change that and that he himself considered himself a pro-choice uh, leader. So having said that, sure, there are some in caucus that might have that view, but I think this was a problem not so much with their social conservative view. But it was a, it was a sense that there was a white supremacist or a white nationalist or an alleged white nationalist or this from person who uh, everybody is, uh, you know, is, is a white nationalist who gave money to his uh, to his campaign. Uh, and that's not acceptable. Uh, and I think the fact that that Derek Sloan didn't or he said that he just or it was going to, uh, I think, caused the problem. But I also I think it was exasperated Libby, by the fact that it came on the uh, sort of on the heels of this letter. That that uh, Aaron O'Toole just sent out about him, um, you know, being a moderate and, and not accepting uh, racist and uh, toes and uh, disavowing what's happened in the Capitol Hill, as you uh, know, in, in Washington. And I think that there was no other choice but to say, okay, well, look at if I'm going to stick to that, and if my if my words mean something. Here's an example of somebody that might have transgressed on this and allowed for a, for a white nationalist to give money to a campaign. So therefore, he's going through the process and, and to his credit, he's, he's instilling the Reform Act, which, which will allow for a caucus debate and a caucus decision. So there is a process in place, but I thought he did the right thing by at least instigating that process.
3: Charles, uh, are those things you think uh, getting him election ready in the meantime, Trudeau's and other politicians' favorability ratings are falling because we're we're having quite a fiasco over this vaccine rollout?
8: The fact is that progressive nature of the Conservative Party is missing since they changed their name and made the amalgamation and so forth. So there's been some sacrifices. John, we need more of you uh, in that party to bring back <laughs> some of that progressive nature. In fact, the, I believe to be the Canadian nature. I mean, there's extremists on both sides of the spectrum. And oftentimes they seem to meet in the same place at the back end, right? Be it a fascist or a communist, or be it white supremacist or individuals that are playing in an extreme sides of the spectrum at the detriment of, of, of the party and of Canadians. Respect and that crazy. divide. I'm I feel Sat by that, that it still exists. I, I appreciate the work that's being done by some of the leaders to try to curb that activity. But, John, the Conservative Party has the majority, if not all, of those individuals fighting that cause to this day. And, uh, liberals, on the other hand, they make uh, their mistakes too. And we're trying desperately to try to be more moderate. And I think that's what the majority of Canadians are. Um, and when it comes to vaccines, I don't know, Libby, we uh, we have a problem. And I don't know where AstraZeneca is on this. I know Pfizer is delayed. Moderna has a number of them coming out, which are easier to transport. But we have other uh, other vaccines available to the market. And why they're not existing and why we don't have them as of now, it concerns me.
1: Former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we began reporting in the middle of the month, the governing Ford PCs have issued guidelines for triage and rationing critical care in the event that our ICUs are overrun by COVID-19 and there's not enough for all patients who need intensive care. According to the leaked document, the key consideration would be deciding which patients would be most likely to survive a year after treatment, which is a reference to surviving their current emergency and not related to pre-existing conditions. These directives would only be enacted on the government's order. They have a lot of wording about preventing discrimination based on race, gender, age, etc., But one disturbing part of the triage protocol refers to enacting a random selection if two patients are rated as equally eligible for the treatment. The province's chief medical officer says it's important to think of these decisions in advance and not leave them to frontline workers in the midst of horrible circumstances. To discuss the triage protocol, Libby was joined by Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto, and David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance and visiting professor at the Osgoode Hall Law School.
9: I hope in the weeks ahead we do not need a document like this. I've got grave concerns about it. I I think it might be, at this point, getting closer to about the best we can do under the circumstances. I worry greatly about the fact that, you know, what about due process? What about consent? I mean, this really turns everything we normally do on its head um, in terms of, you know, patient focused care, um, consent for these types of things, the involvement with the patient, patient might be incapable or their families. And what would due process look like? Is there going to be a due process? Uh, can people appeal? What are, What are people told about this? And and I won't go any further. But but, Libby, I would say you know the thing that worries me too about it is we're talking so much about how we need to protect the most vulnerable. To be honest, this protocol actually finds who the most vulnerable are, and those are the ones that are excluded rather than not excluded.
3: Okay, David Lepofsky, what are your concerns about this?
10: I share your concerns about due process because, j- just so your audience knows, we from the disability community have been trying to get the government to come clean on what their plans are for months, and this got leaked to us, and we made it public. We're one of those. Others did, too, but we're the ones who posted it online. This been shrouded in clouds of secrecy uh, with the government talking to some doctors and bioethicists, but refusing to talk directly to us who are exposed. People with disabilities are disproportionately at risk of getting COVID. They are disproportionately at risk of getting its most serious symptoms. And if you look at long-term care homes, they are disproportionately dying from it. And yet what we find with this document when you cut past all the medical jargon are several ways in which we've shown uh, that it will discriminate against those who are disproportionately exposed to the disease, people with disabilities. And on the issue that that Carrie properly mentioned, which is due process, there's none. And we've asked for it. We've given concrete proposals uh, of what there needs to be. Someone could be deciding on your very life. You get no chance to be heard. You get no appeal. All you get is the bad news if there's a decision that you're gonna be refused critical care. And the last thing I wanna tell you, like there's lots more for us to go into, but underlying there's something which the government is simply not addressing at all, and we've been raising for a long time. We have this pesky little thing in a democracy called the rule of law. And the rule of law isn't just uh, the principle we've heard that Donald Trump is not above the law. It also provides that the government can't do things or direct that things be done that affect your fundamental rights, like your right to live, uh, unless they have a legal mandate to do it, unless the legislature has given them a legal mandate, and unless that law is constitutional. No one has yet shown to us that the government can, by a memo from unnamed bureaucrats sent to whoever, direct... Who decides who lives and who dies and how they're going to decide that?
3: I guess really the bottom line is really, hopefully, we never have to use these. What would you like to leave us with, Carrie? Yeah, and I,
9: Libby, I hope we don't have to use them as well. My point is, you know, I, I just ask that people not walk away from this thinking. It's so complicated and so dangerous, we shouldn't do it at all. Uh, doing nothing with a potential emergency is not a solution and it's not fair to critical care and it's not fair to the people of Canada. Something has to be done and uh, it's a moving process. The story's not over yet.
1: Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor of family and community medicine at U of T, and David Lepofsky, chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance and visiting professor at Osgoode Hall Law School. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one zoomer radio pulling no punches with the best of fight back with jane brown
1: fight back with libby Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones and now
0: fight back's knockout
1: call of the week There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joy in Markham, who also called on Blue Monday to offer her best advice on staying positive. Yes, the pandemic has taken a great toll on everyone, both mentally,
2: physically, and all of the above. But my suggestion is, which is working for me, I live alone, I don't, I'm not in a relationship, so... Yeah, that can be uh, a stress factor, um, but my uh, advice is um, I play uh, my radio 24-7, which is off of my bedroom, but um, I would definitely recommend that. Keep a tune into music. You can learn dance steps if you like to dance, you know, and I'm happy. I'm so glad that I'm able to rise up every day and to celebrate the day and keep moving.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.